you know, there's there's been a couple times in my life where I, I I've been like overwhelmed with fear, and I don't know what what you would say you're afraid of or what brings fear into your heart. Um, but one of the more recent times, as I was thinking about this week, uh, was the time that I, I decided that I was going to start running. Um, you know, I I realized I'm getting older, and and so uh, my wife was a runner, I was not. And, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to try running. I never did long distance stuff. I always uh, did like short bursts, football and wrestling type things. And so I was going to start running. And, uh, and, and the best way to start running is to just do it. And so I, I mapped out my route, you know. Um, I, okay, I'm going to walk this. This is where I'm going to walk and warm up because that walking distance and spot would take me up a hill. So I would start my run at the top of the hill which I thought, you know, that's just strategic, right? I mean, because you start going down the hill and you, you get feeling good. And so I got my, uh, my, my phone was strapped on my arm. I had the headphones in, my shoes were ready to go and took off on my warm-up walk and got to the top of the hill and turned around and started running. And I'm going down the hill and feeling pretty good about myself till it levels out and like, all right, I got a good pace. You know, my wife tells me, you know, if you're going to run, you want to run at a pace that you can talk. And I, I think that's silly. Uh, I don't want to talk when I'm running. I don't know if you're one of those talkers, but you want a pace where you can talk and carry on a conversation. So I'm trying to get that in my head, and you know, it's pretty slow for me, to be honest with you. But I, I get my pace going. I can feel the sweat starting to uh, accumulate on my forehead, and I'm rounding this corner. And as I'm going, listening to some very positive, motivational Christian music while I'm running, uh, I see this black mass. Uh, coming towards me and I stopped to kind of look while I'm running and notice that it is a very large dog coming right at me uh, it has got its its jowl just going its fangs showing it is barking it's got saliva going its hair is standing vertically to God at the moment and uh, as I'm coming to this point I begin thinking back that I had just asked my wife because she was a runner what do you do in these sort of situations? When you come across a dog or some sort of animal or something that may be confrontational, how do you handle that? Because, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a runner now, you know. Um, and so she gave me some tips, and here's some instructions she, she gave me. First thing is you don't show fear. Okay, uh, then you, you speak in a, an authoritative, maybe even a low tone of voice. You make yourself bigger. If that's not working, you look for some sort of an object to defend yourself. Uh, you never turn away or turn your back from a dog or never run from it. And finally, if all else fails, you keep eye contact as you move slowly away uh, to a place where you can be safe. And so as I'm coming and seeing this dog come at me, I begin thinking of this sound wisdom that my wife had given me in this moment. And so I immediately don't show fear. So my thought is, okay, if I'm not going to show fear, then I'm going to speak like I'm friends with this animal. Oh, aren't you a good boy? He's so, oh, you're so strong. Well, I, I must have made it more mad and feeling like I was condescending it because it came at me more. It started growling more. And uh, I remember in this moment, I don't know why I did that, but, but in this moment I actually stopped my watch from keeping my running pace because you know, I was on a record-breaking pace. So I stopped that. And since showing no fear to the dog and acting like I was its friend didn't work, I went to the next thing where you give an authoritative, low voice. And so that's what I did. No, 
bad boy, you go home, you go. I was like, Happy Gilmore, go to your home. You too good for your home, go home. And that made the dog mad. And so it got like four feet in front of me. It is growling, it is barking. Um, hair is up, uh, and I'm thinking, okay, that doesn't work. Okay, step three, make yourself bigger. You go home. <laughs> you, you go home, bad dog. And, and at that point, the dog was ready for confrontation. It, if you've ever been around a dog, it's very vicious. It got down lower like it was ready to, to pounce. Um, the road, I could not find any sticks. There were maybe some pebbles underneath my feet, but I did not feel like I had the craftsman ability to take my headphones and do like a slingshot with a dog. There, were, there was nothing I could pick up. And so I, I kept eye contact with this dog, and the final thing was, okay, you need to back away and find somewhere you can be safe. Well, as the dog was here going nuts, and, and I have this fear in my heart. You know, I, I, before I ran, I went to the bathroom, which was a very good thing at that moment. There's this house where I knew the guy lived there that I thought, if I can just get the house between me and this dog, then, then it may be all right. Maybe I can get around the house and go on my merry way, and the dog will forget about it. And so I slowly began working my way to the house, and the dog was like slowly coming at me, still barking and hair up and growling. Well, I got behind, and the dog must have got bored, and so it went off to wherever it was from. But as I'm walking on the backside of the house, I realized that I have to come around the house. And so this dog is going to see me again and very possibly be on the other side waiting for me. And at that point, God provided about a four to five foot stick uh, about two uh, inches uh, thick. So I picked that up, and I'm walking around the house, and sure enough, as I come around the corner, the dog is right there again. And now I've put myself in a position where I am cornered against this garage and this dog, and so I go through the steps again. Don't show fear. Be authoritative. Make yourself big. But now I've got a weapon, right? And so I'm being authoritative with this weapon, and I'm waving it like it's some sort of magical wand at this formidable beast, telling it to go home and go away. And eventually the dog must have lost, uh, you know, just lost its focus on me or just gotten bored with me or thinking I'm not very tasty. But I was just picturing in my head the newspaper caption, Christian falls to Cujo, and, and I knew this could be me. I mean, I had a, I had a belief in myself. If this dog was going to bite, I could probably get a couple good blows in. I mean, right, guys? I, I'm going to go down fighting, but I know it's going to hurt, right? And so I had this fear. That I didn't know how this was going to go because it was completely out of my control what this dog was going to do. And as I began telling people about this story and this event of me going running, which is why I don't run so much anymore. I'll just use that as my excuse. But I began telling about this dog, and they kept telling me, oh, that dog is the nicest dog ever. That is the sweetest dog in the world. And so I would retell the story, make sure we're talking about the same dog. And they, they kept saying, it's the sweetest dog. Well, probably what happened is, you know, you just had the fear of God come over you, and that dog could sense it. And I don't think it was the fear of God biblically. We're going to talk about that in a second. I did have some fears. I had some fears of being bitten. I had some fears of, you know, messing up my good running pace going. I had some fears of, you know, making a mess uh, in my pants. I had some fears. I even had fears of how silly I would have looked if someone would have driven by with me waving this big stick at this dog, yelling at it. But I never had what the fear of God is as the Bible presents it in Scripture. Um, and we're going to be talking about that this morning. If you have your Bible, we're in Joshua chapter 2 to, to deal with this. 
fear of the Lord or fear of God, because I don't know what strikes fear in your heart, but at that point in time, I was overcome by fear. Uh, I was overcome with uncertainty. I was overcome with this idea that I know I'm not in control, and even though I may be taller than this dog, this dog is becoming very vicious, and I don't think uh, it's going to end well if it's going to come to blows in the end. In Joshua chapter 2, just to get into our context, Joshua sent spies into the land. They arrive in Jericho on the instructions that you are to spy out Jericho, and you're especially to spy out the land around Jericho. And as the spies come into Jericho, they find lodging at Rahab the prostitute's house, to which the king of Jericho in chapter 2 finds out that the spies are there. So he sends his men to go and bring the spies himself. Well, as the men come to Rahab's house, the prostitute, they ask about the spies, and she lies on their behalf. Well, I didn't know where they were from. I don't know where they're going, but they've left before the gates closed, and if you leave now, you can probably catch them. Well, as they chase after the spies, who were actually on her roof, she had covered them in flax, which would be uh, comparable today to like roof tiles in our house today and what we place on top of our homes. And so she had covered them underneath the flax on her roof, but she goes up to visit with them after the king's men had left. And we're going to pick up in verse 8 and what she says to them as she reveals to the spies that the people in Jericho and the people in the land have this fear that is overwhelming them. So let's begin in verse 8 of chapter 2 of Joshua. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. We're going to continue our, our focus again on Joshua and, and our several-week focus on lessons from a pretty woman. This morning dealing with fear. In particular this morning dealing with the fear of God. And if you read through the wisdom books of the Old Testament, particularly in Psalms and Proverbs, you're going to find a theological emphasis on this matter of fear. Matter of fact, if you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, which is believed to be written by King Solomon, the opening of the book starts out with the son of David. So many point to Solomon because he had the resources and the wisdom to do what the writer of Ecclesiastes does. It's an interesting book as the writer kind of does a scientific experiment on his own life. He goes after the things that we can be tempted to go after in life to find fulfillment and find meaning. And he does it through all the means he has available to him. So he pursues after love, work, entertainment, hobbies, luxury, excessive spending, saving, and excessive living. And after all of these experiments that he goes after, he comes to this conclusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 that this is what I've concluded about life and everything that can be attained. That this is the end of the matter. All has been heard, so fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And it is the fear that Rahab mentions here when she informs the spies about the people of Jericho that their hearts have melted, in verse 11, and that there was no spirit left in any man because of you. There's a fear in Jericho. There's a fear within the promised land focused on the Israelites. And it's such good news to the spies 
that when they return back to Joshua in verse 24, this is what they report back to Joshua. Truly the Lord has given the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away before us. This news of this fear brought courage and strength to the spies that they were going to be able to take this land of which God had given them. It was so encouraging that this is the report they deliver back to Joshua. But here's where we're going to be wrestling with this morning. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Yet at the same time, when you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that we are to have a fear of the Lord and that it is heavily important that we do so. If, yet if we're not to have a spirit of fear, because God has not given us a spirit of fear, yet at the same time we are to have a fear of the Lord, then we should come to an understanding what in the world is a fear of the Lord and what is the fear we're not to have because there are two separations that the Scripture gives us. So let's begin there. First question is, what is a fear of the Lord? And to answer what is a fear of the Lord, we should probably start with why have a fear of the Lord. When Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, which is going to be kind of our key verse this morning, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That word beginning in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 means it is a starting point. It is a source. It is a foundation. So the Word of God tells us that in order for us to have true wisdom, in order for us to gain true knowledge, that fear of the Lord is the beginning place. It is the source. It is the starting point. It is the foundation unto which all other things can come out of and from. If we look in Scripture, particularly in the book of Romans, Paul the Apostle is led by the Holy Spirit to point out that a lack of fear is why people choose to live a sinful life. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, the Bible says, The what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." In other words, God has put the evidence of Himself in all of creation for us to see. Rahab is understanding this at this moment. And she declares to the, the spies that you serve the God over all creation. Yet the problem with Rahab is she doesn't fully understand the fear of God, and nor do the people of Jericho or the inhabitants of the land. They don't have a fear of God. They have a fear of the Israelites and the people that God was empowering. So Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1, chapter 1, that even though God has given us His evidence of who He is, and it's plain to see that we as people sinfully, although we can know God, we do not honor Him or give thanks to Him, but instead we become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts become darkened. He writes, claiming to be wise, they become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling moral man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, how this relates to Joshua 2, this is what is happening. We have to remember Rahab is a Canaanite woman living in a Canaanite town in a Canaanite land that is surrounded by Canaanite gods and idolatry. Within Rahab's own confession, which we read, which we read she admits that the people in Jericho and the people in the land, that they did not fear God, but they did fear the Israelite threat. 
Rahab herself at this moment is yet to grasp an understanding of the fear of God. And since the people that she lived with, including herself, did not know God, they could not fear God, and they therefore did not have the wisdom to understand what the true source of their fears were. They were physically afraid of the Israelites, but their fears were not their fears were misdirected not on being on the God that we were to have fear of, but instead of these people. As Paul wrote in Romans 1, they had traded their fear for God for mortal man. Now Rahab, she's seeking to reconcile this as she comes and visits with the spies. She has lived a life, we have to remember, she has lived a life surrounded by idols, by Canaanite gods. She knows what worship, worship is. She knows what gods are. She knows this idea. And so she lives in a city and a land in which people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things that resembled other objects that God had created. But in the midst of what she grew up with and, the, and what she had heard concerning the Israelites, She's coming to this place of understanding of the power and the authority of the God over Israel was greater than the power and authority of the gods that she had spent her whole life pursuing after. And so she's having this transference of power. She's having a power struggle within herself that this God is worthy and he is to be feared where my gods that I've been around are not. So what is this fear that she has? Well, in the Bible, there are different words which translated as fear. The Old Testament is written in a Hebrew language. The New Testament is written in the Greek language. And so you may be reading throughout the Bible, and the word fear from the Hebrew comes across in these words as awe, reverence, worship, service, dread, horror, terror, and amazement. Because English, when we write the words fear, we don't generally come to a positive idea of having a fear. We typically give fear a negative connotation. But in Scripture, that's not the way it works all the time. So that's why when we read in English a word that is, de that is defined as fearful or have a fear, we read as all or reverence, it's because of that, of the connotation we have in our, in our minds of how we're trying to find that. But a fear of the Lord comes down to two things. Perspective and position. The fear of the Lord comes down to perspective and position. Fear in Scripture, fear of God in Scripture, is a theological view that places an individual in a position of life. So brief, you want to throw that up there? A fear of the Lord, then, is a proper perspective of God, understanding who He is. It places me, or us, in a proper position with God. He is God, I am not and results in a proper production for God. This is what the fear of the Lord does. And so with this understanding, we allow the Proverbs and the Wisdom Scripture to, to under, give us the understanding of how this impacts our life. Again, it comes down to a proper perspective of God, which places us in a proper position with God or before God. If you look back to Romans, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, this is our problem. This is the problem of, of the sinful nature of all mankind. The reason we continue to wrestle with sin and the reason sinful people do not flock to Jesus Christ because in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, the word of the Lord says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
In other words, people do not have a proper perspective of God or understanding of God, so they live in sinful places and live out sinful actions. This is true for the unbeliever and the believer alike. It all comes down to a fear of the Lord and having an understanding of who He is, so we're in a proper place before Him, which results in a proper action of, of that in our life. The Bible tells us that when we have a fear of the Lord, it is a heart matter. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. As our sin problem is a heart problem, so is our fear of God a heart problem as well. That's why the proverb says the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. When we sin, this is what is happening. Something, something is happening in our understanding of who God is. We have lost the fear of who He is, a reverence, an awe, an amazement, a, a dread at times, a horror of Him. It's not that God is going to come and smite us as His people, but it's that we have placed Him in the wrong position, and instead in our sinful nature, we've placed our will above His own. We know what's right, we're in control, we know what to do, and so therefore God and His commands, well, that's negotiable. So our fear of the Lord has gotten out of whack. So we've lost perspective, we've gotten in a wrong position, and we produce things in our life that we tend to regret. It all comes down to this fear of the Lord. In the Philippians, Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, saying that since every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, as the believer should always be working, as a result of this, the believer should always be working in Philippians verse, chapter 2, verse 12, out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, perspective, position, production. This is what a fear of God does. Yet the Bible is also clear that fear isn't a fear on the believer of God and that Again, that He'll smite us, but rather this fear of God and understanding who He is and our position before Him as He is holy and we are not. And that produces a production that a fear of God then produces a delight in the believer's heart. The Bible says in Nehemiah, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. It is the delight of a believer's heart to have a fear of God within their own heart, which lets us know that there is a holy fear and an unholy fear, which again brings us back to Joshua chapter 2. Jesus said in Matthew that, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Joshua chapter 2, there was a fear, but what were they afraid of? They were afraid of the Israelites. They were afraid of the threat that the Israelites produced to their way of life. They were afraid of what the Israelites may bring upon them. They were not afraid of God that empowered the Israelites, but rather they were afraid of mortal man that was on their doorstep. But Rahab, in this moment, as she comes to the spies and confesses this fear within the land that makes the men's heart melt away, she confesses this in verse 11, 
She comes to this understanding that the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And this is something that we can read over so easily, but if we remember Rahab is a Canaanite woman, she has grown up with this understanding of Canaanite God. She has not had any formal instructions of who the God is of Israel, yet she comes to this epiphany moment that your God, your God, He is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. She is saying in this moment that the gods that I've grown up learning about, the gods that all the people I live with serve, the gods that the people of this land continue to worship, they are nothing compared to the supreme, authoritative, all-powerful God of Israel. She is beginning to transform her fear, not of the Israelite threat, but of the God of the heavens and the earth. And this fear of the Lord is what saves her and her family. She's come to this knowledge of the impending judgment of God. And because He is God, He can do whatever He wants. And she does not have to rationalize it or have a deeper understanding of why it's coming about. She has this fear. So the Bible tells us that we, when we have a fear, it is to be directed at God alone. This is where Rahab is coming to an understanding of. He alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of reverence. He alone is worthy of awe and worship and service and attention and respect. The Bible lets us know that the heavens sing and praise God and that God's desires that His will and His kingdom would come into our life. But this all begins when we come to this understanding that I have a fear of God within me. Again, not that He's going to destroy me if I'm a child of His, but I have this fear of God, I have this reverence, this awe, this respect, this deep devotion for who He is and my position before Him because I fear Him. It produces what the Bible calls fruit in my life. So other people like Rahab has come to understand, know that He is the God of the heavens and the earth and He alone is worthy of worship and He alone is worthy of my fear. Jericho falls because they will not transfer their fear of people to the fear of the one true God. Rahab survives because she transfers that. She doesn't know everything about God. She hasn't heard all the, the laws and the commandments of God. But she's come to this conclusion. There's a God and He's bigger than anything I've ever come across. So I'm going to submit to Him. And the way it works in our life is when we have a fear of God, the fear of the Lord inside of us, it impacts everything. Our worship, our service in the church, our willingness to be involved in ministries, our obedience to financially give and support, our living a life pleasing to God, our worship beyond singing songs, our ability to listen and apply God's word, our desire to know and more know God more and grow deeper in the relationship we have with Him, our longing to be a godly man or woman, our decision to choose or to not choose sin is all founded on our understanding of who God is and developing this fear of Him, this reverence to Him. He's not a God I can just nonchalantly parade myself into His presence. He is a God who alone is worthy and the only reason I'm even allowed to come and speak of Him and to be in His presence and to enter and to pray and to worship Him is because of what He did for me in opening that door. So I have a fear of Him because He is holy. So we see in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is a preservative for holiness and a preventative for our unholiness. The Bible tells us in Psalm 34, 8, we are to taste and see that the Lord is, you know what it is? Good. 
Taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I love how the Bible uses that analogy because I can relate to that as someone who likes food. Don't like to run, but I like food. So last week, we're getting ready to leave church, and um, you know we're, we're almost always the last people out of the doors, um, which has just been that way, and it, it, it's just pastor life. But we had food at home. I remember I cooked out last week, and I grilled out last week, and so we had a ton of food at home, and we could go home and eat. But I, in my head, I just didn't want to go home and mess with it. And so I said, why don't we go out to eat? Jamie had just told me about this restaurant she had heard of we'd never been to. So I said, why don't we go try it? So oddly enough, we all agreed that that's what we're going to do, even though we end up going home to drop stuff off, and then we drove off to this restaurant. So we had plenty of time to actually do everything together. Matter of fact, we would have had eaten and, and been in our comfy spots on Sunday afternoon by the time we got to the restaurant and got our food there. But we wanted to go try it because someone told her the food here is really good. Well, I like good food. I want to taste it and see. And so we went. We ordered, and sure enough, the food was good, and we ordered a lot of food. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you ask, I'm a, guys, do you ever do this where you ask, well, how big is it? Like, I mean, there's a description of, like, well, how big's the plate, or how big's the burger, or how, you know, so I asked the waiter, well, you know, how much food is it actually, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm famished, I'm hungry, that's right, I'm hungry. And so the waiter began to describe the amount of food, and I said, oh, yeah, then I want the large portion. Would you like to make that a combo? Well, sure, supersize it, you know, whatever. Um, and so they bring all this food, and we begin eating. And, and Jamie has this, if you ever get to eat with Jamie, she has this indicator when she has more than enough food where she begins to, like, separate the food to one side of the plate. And that's the food she's going to get to take home, carry her with. You know, she's going to put that away, and she's going to eat that later. And, and I begin noticing that this is what she's doing. And so she's getting full, I'm getting full, but there's still food to be eaten. And so I have to remind her we're in Springfield. Since we're in Springfield, I think we're going to run a couple errands while we're out. And, you know, and that's probably not going to be good food by the time we get home because it's going to be like microwaved in the trunk. So disappointed as it was, we decided we're going to practice gluttony. And you, I know you've never done that where you've eaten past the point of regret, right? But we start scarfing this stuff down and... and we know that we should have stopped a long time ago, but we didn't want this food was so good. We did not want it to go to waste. We just wanted to, we had tasted it. It was good. We've seen it. Our brains were firing these signals in our head. Yes, more, more, good, good, good. And that's why I love the analogy that we get from Psalms where we taste and see that the Lord is good because I can relate to that. When I eat good food, you know what I do with good food? I eat over in an abundance of food. I wish I could say, you know, we didn't eat the rest of the day, but that would be a lie. Thou shalt not lie. I wish I could say we didn't eat the rest of the week, but you all know that's not true either. So when we have this fear of God and we taste and see that he is good and that fear of God puts a delight in our heart, this is what it produces. Is it produces this desire that I want more. I know God now, but I want to know him more. I'm in love with God now, but I want to fall deeper in love with him. I feel close to God, but I'm not close enough that's the fear of the lord i don't want to miss anything because i have tasted and seen that he is good and he is worthy and he is all powerful and he is mighty he can do anything and everything he knows all things and because he loves me and is for me not against me and i've tasted and seen his goodness i want to be so close to that 
I want my heart to be, as the psalm says, the deer that pants for flowing streams of water. So, Lord, my soul, it is panting for you. My soul thirsts for you, God, the living God. Now, I don't have to understand it all, but I just know that this is the one thing that I will find fulfillment in. This is what Solomon came to conclude in Ecclesiastes. At the end of all the matter, after all has been said and done, fear God and keep His commandments because this is the only thing that will fulfill you. There may be other things that bring fear in your heart and make you afraid or timid or worry or anxious, but when your fear is in a proper place, when you have a holy fear of He who is to be feared, all these other things will fall into perspective. When I keep God in the right place and myself in the right position before Him, the right fruit we begin to produce out of my life. So Proverbs says very nonchalantly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It guides and dictates everything we do. In Joshua 2, there was no fear of God. And so God was bringing the people of the land to destruction. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But there was no fear of him. They had a fear of their own preservation. They had a fear of losing their control. They had a fear of losing what they had accomplished. They had a fear of the uncertainty, but there was no fear of God. And Scripture tells us throughout from Genesis to Revelation, when we misplace our fear, here's the results we can expect. In Genesis, Adam misplaced his fear and he became self-reliant. In Joshua, the city of Jericho misplaced their fear and they became defensive. For Achan in chapter 7, he became rebellious. The Gibeonites in chapter 9, they became deceptive. For the northern and southern kingdoms, they misplaced their fear and they became violent. For the Israelites and judges, they misplaced their fear and they became forgetful. For the Israelites after the reign of King Solomon, they misplaced their fear and they became competitive. For Israel under the divided kingdom, they became distracted. For God's people under Jesus' ministry, they misplaced their fear. They became complacent, judgmental, and self-righteous. You see how it has a reaction in our life? When we take God off of His throne and we take Him and we put ourselves in His position, it it impacts everything we do. Our outlooks, our reactions, our words, and our view of Him, our worship, our ability to be involved in what He's calling us to be involved in, all comes down to having a fear of God because it is the source, foundation, beginning of all wisdom. Then the Bible also says some positive things about having a proper fear of God. And I don't have time to read all the scriptures, um, so I'm just going to get, you just have to trust me, this is from scripture, and you can like do your own search later if you like. But a proper fear of God, here's the, the results. It pleases God. A proper fear of God finds forgiveness from God. It creates a worship heart towards God. It gives us wisdom in word and action. It produces righteousness. It provides protection over our life and our family's lives. A proper fear of God leads to obedience. It turns us away from evil and sin. It directs our steps and words. It sets us apart in the world we live. A proper fear of God deepens our love for God. It deepens our love for one another and it deepens our love for people who are lost in sin. A proper fear of God actually brings us pleasure. 
It prolongs our life. It brings a fulfillment of desires. It grants us mercy and grace from God. It delivers us, and the list goes on and on and on and on. A fear of the Lord gives a proper perspective of God, leading to a proper placement before God and a proper production from our life for God. And a fear of God all comes down to this. How do I view God? How do I view God? Is He this unrelatable being that I hear about and I can read about? Or is He a personal God that is involved and invested in my life and is calling me something apart from this world? How do I view God? Is He holy, holy, holy as the Scripture presents Him? Or is he just kind of this old man with a white beard sitting on a big chair? How do I view God? I'm going back to my running story. I wish when I was in that moment, I was seeing this dog coming after me and I was running. And I wish in that moment I just went to the, the place where I was saying, Oh, when we all get to heaven. You know, I wish I, I had the motto, you know, well, it's your time to go. It's your time to go. I knew that if this dog were to, to tear me apart and my life would end in that moment, I would meet Jesus, I would be in glory. But I was not sitting in that moment or standing in that moment saying, be strong and courageous. Because I understood this in that moment. Whatever this dog was going to do, I had no control over it. I did not know this dog. Every method I tried to stop this dog was not working. And so I had this fear. I, it didn't matter that I had my running gear on. I had my playlist set. I had my earphones on. I had my shoes tied tight. And I was ready to go. It didn't matter. My plans in that moment, this, God, this dog was going to dictate what was going to happen in the next few moments. And that, that encounter with this dog is how I should live my life before God that I can get all my plans set, I can get everything I want to get done, I can have my calendar and my to-do list all laid out, but He's the one in control and He's the one that's going to guide those steps and make those things come to fruition. So I don't fear my plans, I don't fear my budget, I don't fear my retirement package, I don't fear any of that. I fear the God who provides for it and I place myself in the proper position before Him so the things of my life can produce the things it needs to produce for others to see. And so individuals like Rahab who are in my life can say, you know what? I have heard of the God you serve. And I am surrounded by all these other gods of this world and all the gods of America. But your God is the God in the heavens above. And she didn't understand a complete fear, but that change in her led to her salvation. How is your view of God? If you're in a moment where you feel like, you know, I just feel far from God. I feel, you know, I just feel like worship is going through the motions. And it's really, it comes down to your fear of the Lord. It's coming down to your awe of who God is and what God can do. And we're all tempted with this to put God in this little box that, you know what, I don't know, it seems kind of a big thing, God. Remember that song we used to teach our kids? God is so... Some of y'all miss children's choir. So big, so strong, and so mighty. There's what? Nothing our God cannot do. 
That's the God we serve. That is the God who's for us, not against us. And that's the God we're called to fear, to be in awe and reverence of Him, to worship Him even in the moments I don't understand. But I know you do. I know you can handle this. So I'm going to place myself in the right spot. I'm just going to worship you and be in awe and fear of you. So no matter what is going on, no matter what's going to happen, I begin to produce the fruit I need to produce in this moment. When we lose our fear, that's when we start making stupid mistakes. It happens throughout all Scripture. So I had this fear of this dog. One thing I did is I placed the house between me and the dog. And this is what God has done for us, but not a house. He placed His Son, Jesus, between His wrath for our sin and our sin before His holiness. And He stood in the brink. We didn't have to go looking for a stick. We didn't have to go looking for a way to prove ourselves and our strength and our might before God. God came through His Son, Jesus Christ, and He put Himself between our sin and His wrath so that we might be completely forgiven. The Bible comes to this conclusion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, Behold, that word behold, when you see that in Scripture, it is calling your attention to take note of what is about to be said. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying as written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That fear of uncertainty we all have of when life could be over or we may come across a, a, some sort of disease that will take our life and end our time here on this earth, that fear of uncertainty, we lay that before the God of certainty. Death no longer has power over me. Because death is here because of sin and Jesus Christ has paid my debt of sin. So I may live another day, I may die today, but I know I'm in a proper place before you, God. People of Jericho and the inhabitants of the land, they feared the people of Israel because the death that they were going to bring. But they didn't fear God. We no longer have to fear death. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, that fear should not even be a register. I understand, man, I, I want to see my kids grow up. I, I want to see them find the the woman or boy of their dreams, woman for Ethan, boy for Abby, hopefully you figure that out. Um, I want to experience those things. I selfishly want to be here longer. I get that. But no matter how bad it gets in this life, no matter how things get out of control, I don't have to fear those things. And when I do, what I do is I misplace my worship and my focus onto those things. So my fear of God is to keep my focus on Him who is in control of all these things. You may be here this morning and your focus has been off. 
you're saved. You don't have to fear death because you know the promise after this life. But you know your focus and your fear of God has been off. And so you're finding yourself doing some things you know you shouldn't be doing. It's time to put Him back in the proper place in your life. He alone is to be worshipped. You go back to what Rahab says. The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Maybe that's the proclamation you need to make to God. God, you are God. You are my God in the heavens above and the earth. She was saying he is the God of full authority. And that means our life too. You may be here this morning and death is an uncertainty. And so God is inviting you into a relationship with him this morning through Jesus Christ. The Bible says when I admit that I'm a sinner, I mean I do some things I probably shouldn't do and there's no probably about it, I shouldn't do it. I mean, I have those flaws in my life, but I believe in my heart that God loves me this much, that He sent His Son to die for my sins. They placed Him in a tomb, but He rose three days later that I could be completely forgiven, be restored back into a right relationship with Him. The Bible says, when I believe that in my heart and I confess it with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, I will be saved. No ifs, ands, buts, or about it. Maybe that's you this morning. You don't know where you are with God, but you want to make sure. I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've just been in a rut, and God has revealed through His Spirit and His Word that that rut has been brought because you have not been having a proper fear of Him, but more fear of your circumstances. And just come and kneel before the Father. You are the God of the heavens above and the earth below, and that includes everything in my life. I fear you, I love you, I worship you, I'm in awe of you. I'm going to invite you to come. Jackson is going to come and lead us. Time to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you that you are a God who is worthy. Thank you you are a God who knows all things. Thank you you are a God who knows that we wouldn't be able to even comprehend or understand everything that we think we need to understand. And Father, I ask that in my heart, that you place a proper fear so that I be, li- be living a life that is holy and pleasing to you. Your word says in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, there's no one who does good, because there's no one who fears God or fears you, and I don't want to be that, Lord. I pray for this church, Lord. I, I, I pray that you begin to continue to form and transform the heart of this church, that we be a people who are fearing you knowing that that impacts everything that we do as a church. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in a moment right now where they're, they're wrestling with a fear. Father, I think by your love and your grace and your mercy, you bring us this place just to, to get it refocused onto you. Finally, Lord, I pray for those here this morning who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. But the fear Satan is trying to put into their heart right now to stay where they are, Lord, that your spirit would over, overcome that fear. And that when we come to this time of invitation, they would step out of the aisle and come down and proclaim you as the Lord and Savior of their life and ask you for forgiveness for their sins. Lord, we come this time to say that we are not just hearers of the word, but we are doers of it. And forgive me if I failed you in any way. Praise on your son's name.